Hi there and welcome. This podcast chronicles my travels around the state of Ohio in the year leading up to the 2020 presidential election, interviewing my fellow Buckeye voters, hearing their stories, their hopes and their fears, their worries and concerns, and learning how those things influence how they're thinking politically as we head into another presidential election. My name is Pete Brown, and this is Ohio 2020. Hi, everybody. I appreciate you joining me again. On today's show, I get a chance to sit down with Dr. Suzanne Morelli, a political scientist from Capital University here in Central Ohio, and I get to ask her some of the bigger questions about Ohio and its role in presidential elections, things that I've always wondered about but never quite understood in the 38 years that I've lived here. Before we get to why Ohio, though, I thought we should just take a quick look at some numbers so we know just what is Ohio here in 2019. For my teenage daughter's birthday last year, I got her tickets to see the comedian John Mulaney, one of her favorites, when he was in Columbus. And I'm going to really roughly paraphrase here, but one of his local jokes that he made was about all of the paradoxes in Ohio. He said something like, whose idea was it to make this state? Were they like, let's take a state, fill it with colleges nobody can afford, give it an opioid problem, and then have them pick the president? That's a a super rough paraphrase of my somewhat vague memory of his joke, which got a good laugh, but it does speak to just some of the weirdness of my home state. For example, Ohio has 157 four-year colleges or universities. 13 of which are public and the rest are private. If you add in community colleges and trade schools, that number grows to more than 350. Yet for all of these institutions of higher learning, only about 26% of Ohioans have a degree from a four-year university. That ranks us 36th in the nation, tied with Wyoming and just below North Dakota and Florida. Oh, no, we're below Florida. Yikes. In the 2010 census, Ohio had just over 11.5 million residents, and the latest estimate, which dates to 2018, shows about a 1% increase to 11.6 million. That's roughly the same size as Belgium or Tunisia. The three C's are Ohio's largest cities, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. Based on 2018 numbers, Columbus, at just over 890,000 residents, is the 14th largest city in the country with Cleveland coming in 52nd with 383,000 residents and Cincinnati 64th at 302,000. However, if you look at the metropolitan statistical areas, which take things like suburbs and ring counties into consideration, uh, Cincinnati is actually the largest in Ohio and 28th nationally, followed by Columbus 32nd and Cleveland 33rd. In 2010, the state was roughly 83% white, 12% African-American, 3.1% Hispanic, 1.7% Asian, and about 0.2% Native American. That census found there to be about 469,000 foreign-born residents, that's about 4% of the total population, and about half of that number had become naturalized U.S. citizens. The data that I'm looking at from 2010 notes that while Ohio is predominantly white, all of its largest cities have very significant black and Hispanic populations. 
And finally, it's worth noting, and these are 2014 numbers now, about 53% of Ohioans identify with some form of Protestantism, while 22% profess no religion at all, and 18% are Catholic. Other denominations, Mormon, Jewish, Buddhism, clock in at or just under 1%. I don't know why I feel compelled to share this, but Ohio has the second largest Amish population in the country. If you're from Ohio and you travel around the country, you're pretty used to conversations in which you tell someone you're from Ohio and then they tell you about their relatives that live there. It's happened to me so much that I've often thought our state motto should be Ohio, the nation's relatives. It's not though. Our state motto, which was adopted in 1959, is with God, all things are possible. And this motto, I think, speaks to Ohio's willingness to sometimes muck up the lines between church and state. Although, to be fair, when the ACLU sued the state over the motto in 1997, the court sided with Ohio, saying because it does not refer to one specific God, it was not a violation of the First Amendment. And just so you know, Ohio's the only state in the nation with an official rock song, which is Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys, who were from Dayton. frequently played by Ohio State's marching band, which is known as the best damn band in the land. Although, and yes, I may be biased, I think the best marching band in Ohio is the Ohio University Marching 110. And finally, it's worth noting that Ohio is often called the birthplace of the presidents. Seven U.S. presidents were born in Ohio, Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, who was assassinated while he was in office and whose statue stands in front of the state house, William Howard Taft, who was so fat he got stuck in the White House bathtub, and Warren G. Harding. An eighth president, William Henry Harrison, was born in Virginia, but he lived most of his adult life in Ohio, so we claim him as well. Bringing in the number to eight, that's the most of any state but it's also kind of tied with Virginia, depending on who gets to claim William Henry Harrison. So while we in Virginia often argue over William Henry Harrison, we should also note he died just 31 days into his first term, was the first president to die in office, actually. Based on the 2010 census, Ohio has 18 winner-takes-all electoral votes for the presidential election. And although there's going to be a new census in 2020, the 2020 presidential election still uses the 2010 numbers. So the 2024 election will be the first to use updated 2020 census numbers, which will determine how many electoral votes Ohio has. 18 makes us the fifth largest number of electoral votes for a state, just behind Illinois and Pennsylvania, both of which have 20. And as you're going to hear in a bit, Pennsylvania is looking more and more like a swing state in the election as is Florida, which has 29 votes. If you're, really into, if you're really into the kind of nerdy electoral college stuff, I recommend heading to the website 270towin.com. That's the numbers 270-T-O-W-I-N.com, which has this interactive map that you can click on and around to see the different paths to victory for both parties. That site just claimed the past hour of my life, and I'm sure I'm going to be coming back to it. So that's Ohio, at least by the numbers, which show it's largely white, largely Christian, balance between big cities and rural areas. 
But that doesn't really tell the story of Ohio and why it's important. I have to admit, I always thought the reason why the parties spend so much time here, in addition to the fact that 18 is a good number of electoral votes, was that Democrats and Republicans were fairly even. But that's not entirely accurate, as I learned in my conversation with Dr. Suzanne Marilli, who was kind enough to sit down with me and talk about Ohio's role historically and in this upcoming election. I learned a ton from our talk, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing different pieces of this interview in multiple episodes that lie ahead. So here are highlights. Suzanne Marilli, 65 years old. I live in Bexley, Ohio. I'm a college professor at Capital University. I teach political science. At the 10,000-foot level, just can you give me a background of the role Ohio has been playing in presidential elections? Well, Ohio has been the bellwether for most elections. In the last one, many of the pundits thought that Ohio would not be, but in fact, it Ohio really was by moving more definitively toward Trump than the small margins he got in the votes of and from Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So uh, Ohio's been a swing state, um, had visits from presidential candidates for the general election for as long back as I can remember. Yeah. And what, what is it about Ohio that has it flipped back and forth? Like it goes for Obama twice and it went for Bush twice. We have large numbers of independents and many, many voters who are in the middle and I think make judgments as to whom they trust to do well for the community and as president. We, we are in the middle. Ohio from the political science, academic, scholarly perspective, organizationally, the Republican Party has had an edge here back to, oh, at least the Civil War years. And that party's been far more organized and well-funded. So they have tended to hold on to county organizations and what you might call the foundation of the political party structure. When it comes to these general elections for president, the large populations in Cincinnati, now Columbus, it wasn't always that way, uh, Cleveland, I should have said Cleveland first, and some other smaller cities, Youngstown, Toledo, where there was the backbone of manufacturing in the United States, all of, and strong unions, those were, you might say, affluent um, working people who could determine really who would be president. And they, they were looking for who was presidential, I think. So your sense is that these independents aren't issue voters? Well, they can be a mix. They can be issue voters or often I think because we have so much attention from the parties and we have had these swings that people see the candidates, hear the candidates, read about what the candidates have said at various rallies, and I think move to a judgment of the who would make the better president, who just um, has that overall quality that we can pin down in some regards, authoritative, accessible, and someone who you can sort of imagine having a conversation with, I guess, some people are saying these days. 
But I think then it's also more than that. Who do they think can carry the reputation of the United States in the world? We talked about Ohio's independent voters for some time. But then I was curious because Donald Trump won Ohio in 2016 by eight points, which is a huge margin. So I wondered if Ohio was going to be the swing state that it has been in previous elections, especially because the election was much closer in 2016 in states like Florida, which Donald Trump won by a point and a half in Pennsylvania, where the margin was under one point. Now, Pennsylvania has become a little bit different, and going forward, Pennsylvania may get more attention Mm -hmm. in the 2020 general election than Ohio. Some people predict that because they think the election there could be closer. They have a more diverse electorate. And they have had, they have changed some of the districts, the drawing there. So they're a little bit more of a swing state now than Ohio. Is there a sense that Ohio is more solidly red than maybe in the past? Well, it's, it's looking as though it could be that way, but it's hard to tell. In some of the tracking polls, uh, Democratic candidates have done quite well. If the race were run today, they and they ran, I, I guess I saw a couple of them, that Joe Biden would be able to defeat Donald Trump. And of course, these are not thorough kind of deep polling that I would tr- trust thoroughly. Right. Also, though, generally speaking across the nation, we've seen a shift of independents and women voters away from Donald Trump. Now, we have a whole new set of issues going on in Washington with revelations day by day that could lead to some changes in the Republican candidate for the president in 2020, and that would change everything all over. Sure. So, <laughs> sure. I have here, this was how I used to understand political strategy in Ohio. So it's going to be super general, but let me know. If you're a Democrat, you need to win big in Cleveland, win in Franklin County, and not lose too badly in Hamilton County. And if you're a Republican, the opposite is true. I think that's that's what people have said. Yes, I think absolutely. Now, what's real interesting to add on to that is Delaware County. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's another county in Ohio that's similar, but Delaware County is one of the it has been the fastest growing county in the United States, mm-hmm. not just Ohio. And so they have expanded and they're kind of a new county in the sense of more educated, diverse professions, and so forth. And as you know, Democratic challenger there uh, nearly won a special election. He was uh, not a South Danny O'Connor. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost Delaware County, but by much less than Barack Obama lost in 2012 or or 2008. So suddenly people were saying there is a a county to watch that and areas like that that are pretty densely populated suburbs in the vicinity or exurbs of a large city that's quite democratic and that is tolerant of diversity, diverse itself, younger, more urban, will may well change the balancing act there, could give an advantage to Democrats, de- depending, again, on, on the... Uh, the, who the candidates are, 
the party platforms, the issues at hand. Yeah. I mean, how there are innumerable factors. Right. It's way too soon to predict. Okay, I just want to step out of the interview for a second here. Can we just talk about Delaware County, Ohio, which Dr. Morelli just pointed out has been the fastest growing county in the United States. I was part of that growth. I live in Delaware County now. This is my third house in Delaware County. In 2000, around the time I built my first house, the population was 111,000. 2018, it's over 200,000. So it's a massive, massive growth. And a lot of it in southern Delaware County, which is the part of the county I live in, Westerville, which is closest to Columbus, and is where just a few weeks ago the Democrats hosted their candidate debate. The special election she referred to just over a year ago, our congressional representative, Pat T. Berry, longtime Republican representative, uh, resigned or retired, I'm not sure which, and we held a special election in which the Democrat named Danny O'Connor came very close to upsetting the Republican and, and current Congressman Troy Balderson. In fact, that election looked like it was going to be so close that President Trump actually came to Delaware County to campaign for Troy Balderson. He had a huge rally at Orange High School, and it turns out it was on a day that my buddy who lives near Orange High School was having a cookout, and we got a text from his wife in the middle of the day that said, hey, the Secret Service just stopped by and you have to be here before five because they're closing the road down for the president's motorcade. That's just the kind of stuff that happens a lot in Ohio. So we got to his house for the cookout before five and we all sat in the front yard and watched the motorcade come in and then a few hours later watched the motorcade go out. And sometimes I think, okay, here I live in ground zero of Delaware County, which is the county that could potentially flip the state, and then flipping the state could potentially flip the entire presidential election. And it just, just think of the massive, massive responsibility that my vote is here in Delaware County. And I don't know if that's a feeling people outside of Ohio have. I don't know if people even outside of Delaware County have it. But if you're listening to this, if you get nothing else from this entire podcast or from the entire documentary film, it's just to think of that. Think of just the massive importance of your vote if you live in Ohio. And by the way, there's a president from Delaware County. Rutherford B. Hayes was born in the city of Delaware, which is our county seat. The house he was born in has been torn down and is a BP station. And for years, there was just a little marker there to indicate that's where President Hayes had been born. But this past summer, they erected a statue of him on the corner just down the street from the BP station. Hayes was a one-term president. He didn't run for re-election. And he also won the presidency without winning the popular vote, giving rise to the nickname his fraudulency. And although not in Delaware County, in the next county up, which is Marion County, another president, Warren G. Harding, from the city of Marion, current home of the Harding High School presidents. Having lived in Delaware County for almost 20 years now, too, I can say this. For a number of years, I worked very hard on bike trail advocacy, trying to get a system of bike trails put in around Delaware County. I was part of and then led an organization called the Delaware County Friends of the Trail. And I worked side by side with Republican county officials, uh, Republican state senators, state representatives, and the difference in our political ideologies never even came up. Honestly, just set aside and we focused on what we were trying to accomplish. And in fact, the county recorder at the time who was in the Friends of the Trail with me is a Republican whom I consider a friend. He was my state rep and now my state senator. And so I was thinking of this. I wanted to ask Dr. Morelli if she thought Ohio was as polarized as the nation seems to be when looked at on a national scale. And to be honest, her answer checks out with my personal experiences.
I have not looked at a profile of Delaware County, but I'd be curious to know whether they have a large number of independent voters. Do you feel like Ohio is as polarized as people say politics have become? Oh, I think in elections people can be there insofar as they're loyal to the their parties and on issues and sort of local elections are usually nonpartisan. So coalitions change and here today gone tomorrow with sort of friends and enemies. So there it's a it's a complicated mix. There are many, many paradoxes and ambiguities in all of this and I find Ohio overall much more aware of the games of politics and there there kind of is an interest in how well do you play that game and when it when it comes to policies, people look for what's reasonable. Mm-hmm and how do we go forward and how do we work together very sort of level-headed politics here and i think that's why the republicans have done so well because they often are very good at at finding what most people will consider to be reasonable just a couple more like takeaways if you were to say to a major political party coming into ohio this is what you need to know about the state this year what is that Hmm. Well, I I would say, first off, that the impacts of Trump's changes have been variable across the state, and certain areas might support the Republicans more. Some of the big cities, I actually think Franklin County could be a little bit less Democratic itself because the tax cuts, I think, help some of the more affluent. And there there are some in the area who then have given back to the hospital or parks or other philanthropies and that life is pretty good. But where we had promises of jobs, continued jobs, and so the cruise fa- the factory that was building the cruise in Lordstown is, has shut down, and Donald Trump promised that would not happen. And then these tariffs were supposed to be so helpful and, you know, kind of lifting the sea and, and making sure that China started to be, behave itself and toe the mark and stop violating, we might say, the free market protocols. That has not happened. We know that the farmers were hit terribly hard. And then added to that was the weird weather of either too much rain and you can't plant or not enough rain and crops dried up. So I think this year, 15% of Ohio's farmers who had insurance were unable to plant. And that was a high mark for having to get that insurance. And that means that, and China's not buying the soy. We've seen this on television, the soybeans from us. So this is problematic. And so there could be some flips of counties that were solidly or that 77% turnout with two thirds voting Republican Mm -hmm. that that could, I doubt, drop below 50%, but it could definitely drop or the turnout could. Sometimes people will say, well, I can't really vote for the Democrats, but I just can't vote in this election because I cannot support these kinds of policies going forward. So So they just stay home. They could just stay home. That's what kind of happened with the Democrats in 2016, who were disconcerted, disillusioned, or deterred and misinformed, as we know from the study of the Russian influence through the bots and the social media. I would add Trump's 
in a more full historical picture fits the persona of a Jimmy Carter, a John Adams, and a Zachary Taylor much better than he fits what we would say are the kinds of categories of a professional politician or someone who can really invoke ideals and, and know them. Reagan was very Jeffersonian. I think that that stubbornness, that thing, I will have things my way, the turnover in all of the advisors, just saying what he wants, going off message. The, the tweets have been both a brilliant use or way for the president to connect with people and also a dangerous one because they're not vetted, discussed, mulled over, uh, phrased carefully. And that has meant idiosyncratic and problematic messaging when five hours later sure. the president wants to be something different. So that that can seem a little confusing and outright contradictory. And in the past, I mean, John Adams only lasted one term. Jimmy Carter lasted one term. Zachary Taylor died in office. Really, out of those, the uh, previous uh, independently-minded presidents right. Right. in a category one wonderful study only Ohio's Rutherford B. Hayes. Hayes was the only one who insisted on only one term yeah. and was begged to have more and probably could have, yeah. but who set himself on a path of, we are going to make some changes in the spoil system and have a civil service and have professionalism in government and accountability and extra protection against corruptions and so forth. So... Uh, some of the president's inconsistencies speak to what we talked about, a reasonable-minded independent in Ohio who's trying to see who's fit to lead, kind of whatever their personal criteria is. Yes, I think you've put that very well. Um, and I think that that's on the minds of many, that choosing a president isn't the same as choosing a senator or a representative. Uh, my view is American people think through many, many factors and characteristics, and that typically they look for a kind of these paradoxical. You have to be really firm and committed and yet flexible enough to adapt to the changes in what the people want and new evidence and so forth. So this ability to be balanced. So I think that ability to balance and listen and yet be focused, all of those tend to matter so much over time and are real important in determining whether there's a re-election of the, of the candidate. Finally, as I end every interview asking what question I should have asked or didn't ask, I was really surprised that Dr. Morelli talked about craft beer and the Columbus crew, which is Columbus's professional soccer team, which almost was moved to Austin by the owner but in the 11th hour was saved by local Ohio families and a new stadium is being built for them in Columbus. And I thought, what does this have to do with politics? But as she explains, it really is reflective of Ohio's commitment to place and commitment to getting things done. Last question, what should I have asked you about Ohio that I haven't asked? I don't know. 
Oh, let's see. Well, you didn't ask about all the craft beer there is. <laughs> well, which in a way gets to, I, I think Ohio, in the time I've lived here, which is now a little more than 20 years, it's longer than I've lived anywhere, including where I grew up. I would say that there is this entrepreneurial spirit and it, there are innovators here who come up with ingenious plans and products and, and such. And, I have to say, yesterday, the groundbreaking for the news crew stadium, I mean, how unfathomable, amazing was it for organized group of, of fans and their supporters to save a professional team yeah. and to actually put the kibosh on one of these very wealthy people who wanted to to move it and and to have not someone from outside Ohio come in and save it but to have not only that but to have this wonderful Haslam family combined with the Edwards family saving the day and yeah. say that I think is testament to a loyalty, a dedication to place yeah. and to what matters here. And, and I mean, what a, a incredible achievement that was. So Ohio kind of leads the way. The, that initiative really stands out. And I'm sure there are others that I, I don't know about so right. well. Right. But, but a groundswell, probably. People probably with all range of political opinions who just like the soccer team and want to keep them here were able to do it. Yes, and did not like the, the ri this rich owner at just being able to do what he wanted with taking, you know, liberty isn't licensed, yeah. which is, I know, an old saw, but there we are in Ohio saying your liberty is not licensed yeah. to uproot the first professional soccer team in the United States. And just to clarify that last point, uh, the Columbus Crew was one of the original 10 franchises in Major League Soccer, the current top-level professional league in the United States. They began play in 1996 at a stadium near the state fairgrounds, and a new stadium is under construction in downtown Columbus. Anthony Precourt, the former owner of the Crew, had wanted to move them to Austin, Texas, where he had a new stadium deal. Instead, ownership was transferred to two Ohio families, and Precourt became part of an ownership group for a new franchise in Austin. And if you check the show notes for this episode, I'll put some links to renderings of the new Crew Stadium. It looks absolutely gorgeous. I can't wait to see games in it. And in case you wondered, there are now 24 franchises in Major League Soccer, and they have plans to expand to 30 over the next few years. The 24th MLS Cup was held this past weekend. The Seattle Sounders defeated Toronto FC, 3-1 to one to win the championship in front of 70,000 crazy fans in Seattle. If you didn't catch it on ABC Sunday afternoon, it was a great match in a great atmosphere. I want to thank Dr. Suzanne Morelli for her time and being super patient with me and my very basic questions. It was a fantastic interview. We are going to be talking to more political scientists across this year. And I anticipate more from this interview coming out in future episodes as well. And I appreciate all of you who are subscribing to the podcast, who are sharing it on social media, or talking to their friends about it. In our next episode, you're going to meet the first Ohio voter I sat down with for an extended interview. Here's a quick taste. 
And just like you each day I live That much longer than the substance in that crack pipe did Now, I'm not asking for you to feel sorry for me But if you don't want to walk, talk, or play with me Just don't label me that crack baby Because crack didn't make me It's a fascinating story. I hope you'll check it out. Until then, good times, everybody. Good times. This is Ohio 2020 is a podcast and documentary film project produced by Blue Monkey Communications, written and directed by me, Pete Brown, with production and post-production ably handled by Kevin Davison of Twittering Machine Productions. Want to be on the show and share your stories and political insights? Then head to thisisohio2020.com and click apply. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend or two about us, post about us on social media, or head to thisisohio2020.com and click feedback, where you can record a voicemail that comes right to us. Music and sound effects in today's show may come from the websites freesound.org, incompetech.com, or podcastmusic.com, and in general is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. Additional music and interstitials by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. Until next time, I'm Pete Brown for This is Ohio 2020, wishing you and yours good times. (laughs) 